Chapter Fifty Two of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy, read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Fifty Two. During the small hours of the next morning, while it was still dark. Dwellers near the highways were conscious of a disturbance of their night's rest by rumbling noises intermittently continuing till daylight—noises as certain to reoccur in this particular first week of the month as the voice of the cuckoo in the third week of the same. They were the preliminaries of the general removal, the passing of the empty wagons and teams to fetch the goods of the migrating families for it was always by the vehicle of the farmer who required his services that the hired man was conveyed to his destination. That this might be accomplished within the day was the explanation of the reverberation occurring so soon after midnight, the aim of the carters being to reach the door of the outgoing households by six o'clock, when the loading of their movables at once began. But to Tess and her mother's household no such anxious farmer sent his team. They were only women. They were not regular labourers. They were not particularly required anywhere. Hence they had to hire a wagon at their own expense, and got nothing sent gratuitously. It was a relief to Tess, when she looked out of the window that morning, to find that although the weather was windy and lowering, it did not rain and that the wagon had come. A wet lady day was a spectre which removing families never forgot. Damp furniture, damp bedding, damp clothing accompanied it, and left a train of ills. Her mother, Liza Lou, and Abraham were also awake, but the younger children were let sleep on. The four breakfasted by the thin light, and the house-ridding was taken in hand. It proceeded with some cheerfulness, a friendly neighbour or two assisting. When the large articles of furniture had been packed in position, a circular nest was made of the beds and bedding in which Joan Durbeyfield and the young children were to sit through the journey. After loading there was a long delay before the horses were brought, those having been unharnessed during the ridding. But at length, about two o'clock, the whole was under way the cooking-pot swinging from the axle of the wagon, Mrs. Durbeyfield and family at the top, the matron having in her lap, to prevent injury to its works, the head of the clock, which, at any exceptional lurch of the wagon, struck one or one and a half in hurt tones. Tess and the next eldest girl walked alongside till they were out of the village. They had called on a few neighbours that morning and the previous evening, and some came to see them off, all wishing them well, though in their secret hearts hardly expecting welfare possible to such a family, harmless as the Durbeyfields were to all except themselves. Soon the equipage began to ascend to higher ground, and the wind grew keener with the change of level and soil. The day being the 6th of April, the Durbeyfield wagon met many other wagons with families on the summit of the load, 
which was built on a well-nigh unvarying principle, as peculiar, probably, to the rural labourer as the hexagon to the bee. The groundwork of the arrangement was the family dresser, which, with its shining handles and finger-marks, and domestic evidences thick upon it, stood importantly in front, over the tails of the shaft-horses, in its erect and natural position, like some ark of the covenant that they were bound to carry reverently. Some of the households were lively, some mournful, some were stopping at the doors of wayside inns, where, in due time, the Durbeyfield menagerie also drew up to bait horses and to refresh the travellers. During the halt Tess's eye fell upon a three-pint blue mug, which was ascending and descending through the air to and from the feminine section of a household sitting on the summit of a load that had also drawn up at a little distance from the same inn. She followed one of the mug's journeys upward, and perceived it to be clasped by hands whose owner she well knew. Tess went towards the wagon. "'Marian and Iz!' she cried to the girls, for it was they, sitting with the moving family at whose house they had lodged. "'Are you house-ridden to-day, like everybody else?' "'They were,' they said. It had been too rough a life for them at Flint Camash, and they had come away almost without notice, leaving Groby to prosecute them if he chose. They told Tess their destination, and Tess told them hers. Marian leant over the load, and lowered her voice. "'Do you know that the gentleman who follows ye—you'll guess who I mean—came to ask for it at Flintcombe after you'd gone? We didn't tell un where you was, knowing you wouldn't wish to see him.'—'Ah, but I did see him,' Tess murmured. "'He found me. And do he know where you be going?' "'I think so.' "'Husband come back?' "'No.' She bade her acquaintance good-bye, for the respective carters had now come in from the inn, and the two wagons resumed their journey in opposite directions. The vehicle whereupon sat Marian, Iz, and the ploughman's family, with whom they had thrown in their lot, being brightly painted, and drawn by three powerful horses with shining brass ornaments on their harness while the wagon on which Mrs. Durbeyfield and her family rode was a creaking erection that would scarcely bear the weight of the superincumbent load, one which had known no paint since it was made, and drawn by two horses only. The contrast well marked the difference between being fetched by a thriving farmer and conveying oneself whither no hirer wanted one's coming. The distance was great too great for a day's journey, and it was with the utmost difficulty that the horses performed it. Though they had started so early, it was quite late in the afternoon when they had turned the flank of an eminence which formed part of the upland called Green Hill. While the horses stood to stale and breathe themselves, Tess looked around. Under the hill, and just ahead of them, was the half-dead townlet of their pilgrimage, King's Beer where lay those ancestors of whom her father had spoken and sung to painfulness. Kingsbere, the spot of all spots in the world which would be considered the d'Urbervilles' home, 
since they had resided there for full five hundred years. A man could be seen advancing from the outskirts towards them, and when he beheld the nature of their wagon-load he quickened his steps. "'You be the woman they call Mrs. Durbeyfield, I reckon,' he said to Tess's mother, who had descended to walk the remainder of the way. She nodded. "'The widow of the late Sir John Durbeville, poor nobleman, if they care for my rights, and returning to the domain of his forefathers.' "'Oh! Well, I know nothing about that. But if you be Mrs. Durbeyfield, I am sent to tell ye that the rooms you wanted be let. We didn't know that you was coming till we got your letter this morning, when twas too late. But no doubt you can get other lodgings somewhere." The man had noticed the face of Tess, which had become ash-pale at his intelligence. Her mother looked hopelessly at fault. "'What shall we do now, Tess?' she said bitterly. "'Here's a welcome to your ancestors' lands. However, let's try further.' They moved on into the town, and tried with all their might, Tess remaining with the wagon to take care of the children, whilst her mother and Liza Lou made inquiries. At the last return of Joan to the vehicle, an hour later, when her search for accommodation had still been fruitless, the driver of the wagon said the goods must be unloaded, as the horses were half dead, and he was bound to return part of the way at least that night. "'Very well. Unload it there,' said Joan recklessly. "'I'll get shelter somewhere.' The wagon had drawn up under the churchyard wall, in a spot screened from view, and the driver, nothing loath, soon hauled down the poor heap of household goods. This done she paid him, reducing herself almost to her last shilling thereby, and he moved off and left them, only too glad to get out of further dealings with such a family. It was a dry night, and he guessed that they would come to no harm. Tess gazed desperately at the pile of furniture. The cold sunlight of this spring evening peered invidiously upon the crocks and kettles, upon the bunches of dried herbs shivering in the breeze, upon the brass handles of the dresser, upon the wicker cradle that they had all been rocked in, and upon the well-rubbed clock-case, all of which gave out the reproachful gleam of indoor articles abandoned to the vicissitudes of a roofless exposure for which they were never made. Round about were deep-harked hills and slopes, now cut up into little paddocks, and the green foundations that showed where the D'Urberville mansion had once stood, also an outlying stretch of Egdon Heath that had always belonged to the estate. Hard by, the aisle of the church, called the D'Urberville Isle, looked on imperturbably. "'Isn't your family vault your own freehold?' asked Tess's mother, as she returned from a reconnoitre of the church and graveyard. "'Why, of course it is. And that's where we will camp, girls, till the place of your ancestors finds us a roof. Now, Tess and Liza and Abraham, you help me. We'll make a nest for these children, and then we'll have another look around.' Tess listlessly lent a hand, 
and in a quarter of an hour the old four-post bedstead was disassociated from the heap of goods and erected under the south wall of the church, the part of the building known as the d'Urberville Isle, beneath which the huge vaults lay. Over the tester of the bedstead was a beautiful traceried window of many lights, its date being the fifteenth century. It was called the d'Urberville window, and in the upper part could be discerned heraldic emblems like those on d'Urberville's old seal and spoon. Joan drew the curtains round the bed so as to make an excellent tent of it, and put the smaller children inside. "'If it comes to the worst we can sleep there too for one night,' she said. "'But let us try further on and get something for the dears to eat. Oh, Tess, what's the use of your playing at marrying gentlemen if it leaves us like this?' Accompanied by Liza Lou and the boy, she again ascended the little lane which secluded the church from the townlet. As soon as they got into the street they beheld a man on horseback gazing up and down. "'Ah, I'm looking for you,' he said, riding up to them. "'This is indeed a family gathering on the historic spot.' It was Alec d'Urberville. "'Where is Tess?' he asked. Personally, Joan had no liking for Alec. She cursorily signified the direction of the church, and went on, d'Urberville saying that he would see them again, in case they should still be unsuccessful in their search for shelter, of which he had just heard. When they had gone, d'Urberville rode to the inn, and shortly after came out on foot. In the interim Tess, left with the children inside the bedstead, remained talking with them a while, till, seeing that no more could be done to make them comfortable just then, she walked about the churchyard, now beginning to be embrowned by the shades of nightfall. The door of the church was unfastened, and she entered it for the first time in her life. Within the window, under which the bedstead stood, were the tombs of the family, covering in their dates several centuries. They were canopied, altered-shaped, and plain, their carvings being defaced and broken, their brasses torn from the matrices, the rivet-holes remaining like martin-holes in a sand-cliff. All of the reminders that she had ever received that her people were socially extinct, there was none so forcible as this spoliation. She drew near to a dark stone, on which was inscribed, Ostium sepulchri, antique famile d'Urberville. Tess did not read church Latin like a cardinal, but she knew that this was the door of her ancient sepulchre, and that the tall knights of whom her father had chanted in his cups lay inside. She musingly turned to withdraw, passing near an altar tomb, the oldest of them all, on which was a recumbent figure. In the dusk she had not noticed it before, and would hardly have noticed it now but for an odd fancy that the effigy moved. As soon as she drew close to it she discovered all in a moment that the figure was a living person, and the shock to her sense of not having been alone was so violent that she was quite overcome, and sank down nigh to fainting, not, however, till she had recognized Alec d'Urberville in the form. 
He leapt off the slab and supported her. "'I saw you come in,' he said, smiling, and got up there not to interrupt your meditations. "'A family gathering, is it not, with these old fellows under us here? Listen!' He stamped with his heel heavily on the floor, whereupon there arose a hollow echo from below. "'That shook him a bit, I'll warrant,' he continued. "'And you thought I was the mere stone reproduction of one of them. But no, the old order changeth. The little finger of the sham d'Urberville can do more for you than the whole dynasty of the real underneath. Now command me. What shall I do?' "'Go away,' she murmured. "'I will. I'll look for your mother,' said he blandly. But in passing her he whispered, "'Mind this, you'll be civil yet.' When he was gone she bent down upon the entrance to the vaults and said, "'Why am I on the wrong side of this door?' In the meantime Marian and Is Hewitt had journeyed onwards with the chattels of the ploughman in the direction of their land of Canaan, the Egypt of some other family who had left it only that morning. But the girls did not for a long time think of where they were going. Their talk was of Angel Clare and Tess, and Tess's persistent lover, whose connection with her previous history they had partly heard and partly guessed ere this. "'Tisn't as though she'd never known him afore,' said Marian. "'His having won her once makes all the difference in the world. "'Twould be a thousand pities if he were to toll her away again. "'Mr. Clare can never be anything to us, he is, "'and why should we grudge him to her and not try to mend this quarrel? "'If he could only know what straits she's put to, "'and what's hovering around, "'he might come to take care of his own. "'Could we let him know?' They thought of this all the way to their destination but the bustle of re-establishment in their new place took up all their attention then, and when they were settled, a month later, they heard of Clare's approaching return, though they had learnt nothing more of Tess. Upon that, agitated anew by their attachment to him, yet honourably disposed to her, Marian uncorked the penny-ink-bottle they shared, and a few lines were concocted between the two girls. Honoured sir, look to your wife if you do love her as much as she do love you, for she is sore put to by an enemy in the shape of a friend. Sir, there is one near her who ought to be away. A woman should not be tried beyond her strength, and continual dropping will wear away a stone, ay, more, a diamond from two well-wishers. This was addressed to Angel Clare, at the only place they had ever heard him to be connected with, Emminster Vicarage, after which they continued in a mood of emotional exultation at their own generosity, which made them sing in hysterical snatches and weep at the same time. End of chapter 52 End of Phase the Sixth